Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Kate Hayes, the director of Direct Impact. Kate, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. I'm excited to have a longer conversation with you about board leadership and um, how we can be talking about uh, what a, a diverse and inclusive board would look like in a 21st century kind of forward nonprofit. But before we dive into the specifics of that, can you just tell people a little bit about your background, direct impact, and the work that you do? Absolutely. So I am the head of direct impact at Echoing Green. Echoing Green is an organization that has been supporting social entrepreneurs working around the globe for the past 30 years. And about four years ago, I joined the team and was tasked of thinking how we could better support the work of our social entrepreneurs through an ecosystem approach. And when we think about an ecosystem approach to social change, we're thinking about who are the key players that need to show up in the social sector to support the work that social entrepreneurs are doing. And so I began to look at the field and think about where we could go next with the work of Echoing Green. And I saw a few things. Our fellows who are social entrepreneurs that we work with had been asking for support with their boards forever. It's been a constant point of tension and area that they're thinking a lot about how to improve. So I began looking at the field and seeing what already existed. And what I learned was that boards are really ineffective. They're not diverse, which we'll, we'll certainly get to and there is very few training programs that existed. And those that did are really focused just on the legal and fiduciary responsibilities, which while are important, they're not enough. And so we said, and I said, can we focus on boards as leadership teams and really reshape and reimagine how boards could work? So that came to be through Direct Impact, which is a cohort-based program where we work with mid-career corporate professionals and prepare them to meaningfully engage in the social sector through board service and beyond. So lots to unpack in all of that, but let's kind of go um, to some of the original information you had contacted me about on the, the current state of affairs. If we take a look at charities uh, across the United States and, and get a sense of what does governance look like today, um, not finding it particularly reflective of what the United States looks like today. Absolutely. Boards do not reflect the United States population, and they certainly often don't reflect what the communities that nonprofits are serving look like. And that's a really big problem because the board is the ultimate decision maker of an organization. So we need to make sure that those that are in positions of power reflect the communities that they're serving. And to get specific, only 20% of nonprofit board members in the U.S. are people of color. And what's even worse is 25% of boards are entirely white, 90% of board chairs are white, and 89% of CEOs are white. The good news there is that organizations aren't satisfied with that data. So 70% of board members aren't satisfied with the racial and ethnic diversity on their boards. But we need to begin to translate that into action to shift these numbers to a much better place. 
And there's, I, I appreciate you mentioning that um, statistic about how many people understand that the current state of affairs isn't okay. But I think the breakdown that I've seen and have had a conversation on this podcast a year or two ago about this is um, how do we prioritize what it means to um, really incorporate leadership in different ways from other communities? And um, I think that there is a, a general sense of goodwill towards the idea, which is better than not. Um, but it always sort of, to your point earlier about how focused is the board on things other than finance and governance? It always seems to be flowing like, well, as soon as we approve this audit, you know, we'll we'll talk about that diversity and inclusion work. As soon as we, you know, get the next budget taken care of, we'll we'll think about that. That always seems to be a uh, a few steps lower on the priority list than perhaps actually gets it to be actionable. So, how do you take that sense of we're not doing a very good job and move it into we are taking action to correct that problem? Absolutely. I think that the data backs up the case and the data shows that diverse teams are more effective than teams aren't diverse that aren't diverse. And the data that I shared was very specific to racial and ethnic, but this really cuts across all forms of diversity from those two to age to socioeconomic status. So I think that it really comes down to understanding and living the data and knowing that they're going to be more effective if and when they make that, if boards make that a priority. And once that decision is made, it's actually much easier than people think. It's really the decision is the most critical component of moving towards making a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable board. But the data is really where, where it starts. Well, last year you um, had a, a piece in the um, SSIR, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, um, you know, pretty well-respected and well-known industry uh, pub that talks about this, where you you start out the whole thing with the make the decision. And um, I think that that accountability piece of being brought in of, um, it can't just be a, a, a bench thing of we have to try to do that, but it needs to be something that um, has a, a measurable goal of what are we going to do that we can check that we did. Um, that is not to say that we can guarantee a specific outcome necessarily, but there are certainly steps that you can be taking as that that kind of confirm that make the decision moment that you're talking about. So as, as you're working through this process, are there specific things that you can tell people, here's how you know you've made a decision. When you've done X, Y, Z, you can really say you've made that decision, you're starting. Yes, the very first thing that an organization can do is to develop a matrix of who is currently on their board and who they want to be on their board and is not. And there's not a, a lot of great tools out there in the field. And I think just using an Excel spreadsheet is fine. So diversity is going to look different for every organization. Um, and it's, it's, really about taking an hour or two, sitting down, mapping out what are the key measurements that we're looking for? What do we want the racial and ethnic diversity to look like? What do we want our age diversity to look like? What do we want socioeconomic and so on? And then plugging in who are our current board members that meet those different criteria and what's missing. And once you have what's missing, and just I, I think that's where the decision comes in. So you you now are in a place where it's very clear what you need to go after. And that's when you can actually start to do the work and fill in those gaps. 
So in my experience, I've been, uh, those sorts of grids have been around for a long time in terms of um, um, either a, a vocational background or some other kind of functional skill capacity where they say, well, we want a lawyer on the board, we want an accountant on the board, we want, uh, you know, whatever. Um, People are used to seeing that kind of thing gridded out to say, do we have these kinds of skills at the table? And to be able to act on those as recruiting tools. Um, but to uh, talk a little bit more about both the community that your charity may be based in and how reflective are you of that, but also then to your earlier point, the the service population that you're trying to reach. And what does that look like? Because those two areas of inclusion um, might be different for any given community, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think that while you're right, the, there's the classic grid that everybody thinks of, the lawyer, the accountant, the financial person. I think there's so many layers underneath each that we that boards can unpack and really understand what exactly it is that they're looking for. So when I think about what that grid looks like, there are those very technical expertise. There's also, for lack of a better term, soft skills and what mm-hmm. people bring to the table in terms of communication and the ability to be problem solvers and relationship builders. And then there's, is this a person part of the community that we're serving? And that's not necessarily something that you're going to know without digging into a deeper conversation with each of your board members. Um, It's really easy to see somebody who's the accountant and and just see them for, okay, great, you can can help with our audit. but going, going further with each of those board members. And then there are the key demographic things that are really important to, to get right. And beyond those three things, there's also the connections. So mapping out what are the community connections that the person has. Maybe they're not directly from that community, but they work at a foundation that serves that community. Do they have media contacts? So really getting deep and explicit about all of those different areas that are important to a specific organization and then then seeing where those gaps are. And I think not letting yourself off the hook uh, regarding, you know, when you've made that decision, that accountability back to the board of um, not going, well, you know, right now we, we need to get that accountant first. And as soon as we've got that done, then we're going to look for a more diverse board that's, that has this culture of inclusiveness that does all these things. That if if we're only thinking about those traditional categories of skills um, that I, I do think that it, it can really challenge this process. Uh, a board that I'm serving on currently, we've sort of reversed this a little bit, talking about if we are going to be the inclusive, diverse group that we really claim we want to be, those folks need to be at the table. If they don't come with the set of skills that we're looking for, then we need to help them get the set of skills that will help this organization survive. And I think that backing that up a little bit saying it is more important to us to have an inclusive board that really represents the community that we're serving than to have these particular checkbox skills. And then to find out how do we build the right kind of skills within the people that we have so that they can take that leadership and understand that and all the rest of it. But that's a different prioritization than we've probably seen in the past. You're absolutely right. And I think that that actually really brings up the point that all board mem- members need training. Yes. Boards, it's something like 83% of board members have not gone through any sort of training. So if you can get the right people in the room that reflect exactly what you're looking for, you can build in those skill sets through really strong intentional training. And I think what's really interesting is that 50% of board members 
don't think that their fellow board members are engaged. And so if we get the right people that are there for the right reasons and really care about the organization, its mission, that's when we're going to start to shift and have boards that are more effective. So really developing diverse and inclusive boards is just the baseline for having boards that overall are much, much better and more effective. Can you talk a little bit about the idea of inclusivity around culture change in particular? Because I I think that uh, many boards start the process from a place of um, boards of directors in the 20th century work this way. So this is how boards have to work. You know, we have Robert's Rules of Order. We divide into committees. We do these things. But um, there is nothing in law that requires you to use parliamentary procedure in a meeting if that's not an inclusive process for everybody. It's just sort of a default. And I, I think coming out of those assumptions about what is our governance process going to look like so that it is more reflective and inclusive of the people that are here um, is a, a shift for many boards to begin to think about there where, where they maybe don't even consider that until somebody puts it in front of them. Yes, I. this is one of the areas that I get most excited about, which is how do we shift this culture to create more inclusive boards and just better performing boards. I think that the thing that is often missing in boards is developing relationships amongst board members and really developing that partnership, that true trusting partnership between board members and the executive director or CEO. And so when I think about how do you create a culture, whether it's from scratch with a very early stage board or with a much more established board that has made that decision to become more inclusive and diverse, the very first thing that's important to do is really to build trust amongst board members. And I think there's a few ways that you can do that intentionally. The first really comes down to developing strong group norms and group, group practices. There's naturally a lot of the time power dynamics that exist in boardrooms and it typically comes down to who's writing the biggest check. So that's something that we really wanna change, but by actually getting everybody on the same page in terms of how they're expected to show up in board meetings and in those relationships. And I'm talking about simple group norms like being present, creating a safe space, understanding what curious questions look like, creating space for silence and for people to think and, and respond instead of just going from agenda item to agenda item and doing that relationship building both inside and outside of the boardrooms is really impactful. There's actually finally data that shows that having social interactions amongst board members makes boards perform better, which is really exciting. Um, and I think that's where inclusivity and in this culture change begins. From there, it's really rethinking what an agenda looks like. I I can't tell you how many times I go to board meetings and observe them or I'm on boards and you walk in, you you approve the minutes from the last meeting, you go through everything that was in the pre-reading and all of a sudden it's two and a half hours in, you've mm -hmm. got 30 minutes to talk about the strategic discussion. And so I like to flip that. And as we've we've begun to test and, and look at what board meetings could look like, really reimagine that. Every board meeting should start with a relationship building moment. So 
each board, or board member comes in, shares a little bit about what's going on in their life, and shares something that they've been thinking about in terms of the organization. Depending on how many board members, this will take no more than 10 or 15 minutes, but is a really strong way to connect people with each other and have everybody feel like they have a voice immediately as soon as the meeting starts. From there, going directly into the strategic discussion works really well. And when, when an organization is thinking about what does that strategic discussion look like, it's really important to get intentional about group facilitation and making sure that every voice is going to be heard in that conversation. And that requires having a great facilitator, whether it's the board chair, whether it's somebody on the team that is a good facilitator and getting really clear on the outcome. Then the rest of the board to-dos can happen, but you'll have the two most important things right at the start where it's where everybody has been heard. People are gonna start showing up on time. They're gonna feel more engaged and that's going to help start shifting the culture around what board meetings can be like. And I think that an acknowledgement of the um, uncomfortableness of a process like this for people that have done the traditional board thing for a while. Um, and I will you know, raise my own hand and say when some of the boards that I've been on have wanted to do that more um, personal development time thing, I, I'm the first one that cringes and go, oh, gosh, do we have to? Uh, you know, <clears throat> I don't want to do that. Can, can we just you know, get the business done and I'm going to get ro rolling out of here? Because my culture of how I've done these things has been the traditional mainstream. We've always done it this way. This is easy. I know what to expect. And you've got to then ask those people, somebody is going to be uncomfortable here while we build something new. So is it going to be that uh, diverse body of people that don't have your experience and don't have your expectations set up and they're going to be a little uncomfortable while they learn? Or are we going to ask you, the established you know group that's trying to change to be the one that gets a little uncomfortable here and acknowledge that that is going to be part of this process and it's okay, but don't pretend like you're suddenly found the easy way to be an inclusive group. There has to be a shift and somebody is going to be uncomfortable in that time before it becomes more normative that this is just how we work. Absolutely. And this group norm that I love to start every meeting with is get comfortable feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think your point that it, it can be that person who is traditionally comfortable and doesn't want that discomfort. And it's a little scary and there's a lot of unknowns and there certainly is a lot of hesitancy. I'm working with corporate leaders all the time and the way things are done in many corporate settings is that very traditional, let's get down to business, we don't need to worry about the relationship side of things. But nonprofits are innately human-based. Um, and, and people are coming outside of their day jobs only a few hours a month, if that, are they spending together. So leaning into that discomfort for the greater good of the organization is, is so incredibly valuable. You mentioned earlier the idea of allowing some room for silence as a, a more inclusive practice, that there are times when um, some members coming into this work who, who don't have that comfort level may need a second to contemplate how do they want to participate, what's the right way for them. And if the, the same three or four board members are constantly jumping in and saying, you know, I think X and I think Y, um, it doesn't really give that opportunity to to build that broader coalition. But somebody has to help 
again, establish that as a, a, a normative practice here. And I don't know if you have any specific recommendations around how that particular part of it changes, but I think it's a pretty big opportunity for the folks that are the more experienced traditional board members to have that learning moment of how often are you talking and how do you make space for other people to do that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there's two group norms that really, that, that are where this begins. The first is this silence is a must and is, and, and is embraced. The second is this norm that I like to think of as step up, step back. And that, that's about encouraging people who might not normally be the first to raise their hand or jump in to step in and to say more. And those that are the first, um, as to whatever extent they're self-aware that they're usually the first, to step back and make space. And it's, it's much simpler than people think. Naming these as group norms at the beginning of every single meeting yeah. is so important. And it's going to take time for that culture to shift. So that's really the, the first step is name them, explain what they mean. And in the first few meetings, also tell your board that you're going to point out when people are not stepping up or not stepping back and are not encouraging enough silence. And that can, once again, to the point of discomfort, that can make people feel uncomfortable, but it will over time begin to change that culture. So I think that's, that's really at the core of how to create that, that silence and making sure that people know that the silence might last longer than they expect. Um, and that's okay too. Right. Um, I, I really appreciate that emphasis on that particular piece. I think that that really is something that um, I've learned a lot from and is important to talk about. But there's other tools that kind of get to the same things that um, um, I'll, I'll have links in the show notes for some of these resources that you provided to me ahead of our conversation. But um, in the SSRI article, when you're talking about frameworks for how groups can have conversations that are non-traditional, that are doing things. You mentioned um, uh, an appreciative inquiry process, for example, um, and you know, you, understanding some of what's going on in the differences of people using things like um, implicit association tests. Um, could you talk about either or both of those as ways of broadening out that cultural inclusiveness? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I'll, I'll start with a implicit association and move to appreciative inquiry. Implicit association tests are a really great way to understand baseline biases that exist, and they they exist for everybody. And knowing that and making sure people know that it's okay, that it's natural, we all have them. But get clear on the need to understand your implicit bias. Um, even taking a few of the tests, they've got tons of them on the the link in in that article. Having your board members, or if you are a board member, taking the time to take them and to really create space for yourself to reflect around those biases that you hold will make that internal culture change happen and that increased self-awareness, increased understanding of the populations that you're trying to get onto the boards or you're serving, can't it, it can't be said enough how important that is and what a great tool that is to begin that conversation. With appreciative inquiry, this is such a, a great way to think about having conversations, especially in organizations where everybody is there for good reasons and to, to 
make the world a better place to create social change. And appreciative inquiry is around assuming the positive and asking questions to seek to learn without having to dig into every negative thing or assume the worst. I think what's really interesting about boards as teams is because they're only spending a few hours together every month or every couple of months, there's a whole lot happening in between and it can be really easy to jump in and um, things can get misconstrued and questions can quickly go to negative, the negative and to assuming the worst or not asking enough. So this notion of setting the groundwork that everybody will talk about questions and solutions from a positive framework that appreciates everything about it is just a great way to begin to shift how people show up in those boardrooms and how people feel with the way people ask questions. So again, I keep coming back to this, you know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable thing that you were talking about there, that um, part of that that framework is going to be tackling things that um, you need an understanding of within your nonprofit, but is not necessarily directly related to your specific mission. If you're a music school or whatever, and you're going through these questions, it, it may not be something that everybody is comfortable saying, why am I spending my time doing these things? But I do think that it really does impact anybody where where community is a focus. And of course, in the charitable world, that is almost everybody, right? That's just kind of part of what we do. So I, I think that you're hitting on something with that process is that's really important in that appreciative component. But I think maybe, again, a little challenging and uncomfortable for people to make that a focus of board meetings when maybe they haven't done that in their careers up to date. Absolutely. And I think that... It is, it's, it's something that's going to take time and is going to take a lot of conversations amongst board members to think about why they want to make this shift, why, wanna, why they want to make this culture shift. So coming back to tying around making that decision and then really continuing to connect back. Another portion of a board meeting that I think ties in well to this that is important is having mission moments in board mm -hmm. meetings and reminding everybody why they're there because it can be really easy to forget when you're caught up in discussions at the board meeting about the budget or the audit. Um, but connecting, connecting back to why people are there why they care about the organization and why it's important to lean into that discomfort when it is for the benefit of the work that they're doing as an organization and as a team, the board staff partnership is a great way to keep that reminder going and help to push people through that discomfort that they might feel. I think a, a lot of what we've been focusing on so far has been trying to change the culture of the organization once you've gotten some people there. Um, but of course, part of this process is how are you inviting people to think about leadership roles that um, haven't been invited to that table before? Uh, and you acknowledge in some of your writing uh, a, a fairly traditional thing of, you know, the, the old guard sits around and says, who should we be recruiting for the board? And somebody at the table says, well, I know a friend at my law firm that can do it, or I know a person at my CPA firm that can do it. And you're working within the networks of the people that are already in the room. 
Uh, so acknowledging that that in and of itself is pretty limiting, um, how do you help people break out of, well, we don't know folks that are you know, meeting these different diverse criteria that we you know, have at least in theory on paper committed to, um, but now is the action of you've got to get some of them to agree to help you build and change a culture that they weren't invited to creating in the first place. And that whole process can be very challenging. It absolutely can be. I think a really good place to start is by questioning that belief that, oh, I don't know people beyond this network. One of the activities that I think is really effective for boards, I've done this with a whole bunch, and it really works, is to do a network mapping activity. And this, while people might say, let me go on my LinkedIn, I can find people. Mm -hmm. There's actually a lot of power in taking a big piece of flip chart paper and mapping out your network and encouraging your board members to think creatively about every network that they have in their life and starting in the center with this is the organization and going to places like job, family, friends, college, childhood, and pushing them to think about who's in those networks that they haven't yet tapped into that might actually have insight into connecting with other populations of people beyond those immediate networks that we think about. So I think that's a, a really good place to start. I think it's also then saying it's okay that we don't know who can we ask to help us. And whether that is connecting with a community member that the organization is serving, connecting with foundations or funders that might have ties beyond your immediate networks, or just going to the general population and making sure that the job description for a board member is posted on places like Idealist and BridgeSpan and LinkedIn and making it so that anybody that might be interested and might be searching for a role in that type of organization is able to find it. And I would take that idea a step further, too, to literally say, put your money where your mouth is, that in some cases, um, going out to um, a community-specific newspaper or website or whatever um, and and placing some paid ad there to say, um, we're trying to build better bridges and connections here. We will help you build some skills in board leadership and nonprofit development. If you're interested, you know, here's how you can get a hold of us. But um, often we, we think about these recruiting ideas. Ideas and the idea of, of spending even just a few dollars to reach people that we don't maybe know yet um, gets under the skin of some charities where they're like, well, we've never spent money on board recruitment. Well, no, you haven't yet. But now you're committing to doing something different. And if it means that you really just don't know any young people, you just don't really have connections in the LBGTQ community, you don't know new, new American communities in your neighborhood, there are newspapers, websites, whatever, that do know those folks. Go engage with them. Pay them some money if that's what they request in order to do this and start living that value even if it costs you a dollar or two. And I think if you put that somewhat you know, in your face moment in front of them, people will go, well, all right, I, you're right. It's not that much money, but it is something that somebody has to maybe throw in front of them to say, there are places you can be where other folks are. You just haven't maybe ever spent a dollar or two to, to be in that space. Exactly. And I, I want to pull out one thing that you said too, that I think really can get to this in a different way is by getting first young people on your board. Yeah. Only 16 or 17% of board members are under the age of 40, yet that group in their 30s is exactly who we're targeting in the direct impact program because 
not only do they have the time and the energy to give to the organization, but they have access both to their networks, their bosses, their bosses' bosses, but also to this next generation um, and often to social media and to thinking about how you can make those connections like ads. And, and I think that we've, we first must get young people involved in boards. And there's a lot of perceptions about what young people can offer to boards, and a lot of those are misconceptions. Um, a lot of them do have access to capital, do have access to networks, don't look like the traditional board member that's much older, uh, but can provide so much value. And I think comes back to, to then recruiting them and having them really support in finding the individuals that you're looking for in other networks in creative ways. Yeah, I, I want to emphasize that too. I, I think that uh, one of the organizations I currently serve on a board um, with is um, very specifically working on in changing our board diversity around young younger members because it is an LGBTQ organization. And the new communities that are coming up with very different experiences on gender identity and um, orientation questions and fluidity is not the experience of the old guard that led the organizations in the past. Their lived experience is substantially different, even though technically all from the same community, but generationally, it's a huge difference. So to get that perspective on the board uh, is a really critical thing. And I think many charities don't understand that uh, there are pretty fundamental differences with, with newer experiences than perhaps the folks that had been doing this work 20 or 30 years. And we need those voices at the table in the leadership role, not just people you interview periodically through a you know survey monkey absolutely i think it's so incredibly important and this next generation of young people want to be engaged and if organizations aren't engaging them at a young age they're going to find another organization and they're going to develop a long-term relationship with that organization so for those that are a little bit hesitant and don't want things to switch up with that younger perspective it's actually becoming really necessary yeah. because the millennial and now Gen Gen Z coming up quickly um, want to be engaged in a very deep way, and that's something that is new and is is talked a lot about. So engaging them early in meaningful ways through board service, not just junior boards, though that can be a way, um, but in those decision making positions is is a must do. So you mentioned um, being more deliberate around a training process for all board members, not um, just you know younger people that may not have served on a board before and they want some training around some more specific tactical things, but that education process being sort of a universal thing to an inclusive board that the education may not be tactics, it may be about lived experience and uh, what other people's lives are like and why that's different. Um, having that built in additionally, I do think... Um, sends a different message to that newer person coming in. It's like, no, not, it's not just you that um, benefits from education work. It's this entire group in different phases and different ways, but everybody here has a culture of expectation that you will keep growing. Yes. So one of the things that we do in Direct Impact, and once I do this with an organization, they immediately say, I have to do this with my board, is we do these very immersive site visits. And these can be as short as a day, which oftentimes board members, when they go to visit the sites of the organizations they're working with, will spend a couple of hours, but spending at least a day and getting deeply immersed in the organization is 
the absolute best training that exists and spending the time to understand the inner workings. Board members in general shouldn't get too deep under the hood and, and mixed up into the day-to-day -day operations, but it's important for them to become operationally aware. And so spending that day understanding how things operate, where those pain points and challenges are, but more importantly, connecting with community members, connecting with those that the organization is serving, connecting with donors, with funders, with other staff beyond the executive director is a really easy way to create a training experience for them to really understand this lived experience of those that they're serving in this capacity as a board member. So uh, how do you, and we're starting to run a little low on time, so I want to make sure if there's areas we haven't hit yet that you really want to make sure we hit, um, uh, bring those up and, and let's make sure we get to them before we completely run out of time. But I'm going to throw one more question out there about um, accountabilities towards actually making progress in this with and avoiding um, what may feel like tokenism. And, and those two things, um, I think there's a tension there that people feel like if we are holding ourselves to the fire that we are going to do something um, but you know uh, feeling like if we make a specific goal of X number of board seats or whatever are we really being um, inclusive and engaging in filling those seats or are we just tokenizing them and I I think that those are struggles people have and love to hear your experience with that yeah I think that this conversation around tokenizing and people feeling tokenized is a really important one. And I think one that can start the conversation around, of course, making sure we don't do that, but there shouldn't, <laughs> there shouldn't be one per, there shouldn't be one young person on a board. There shouldn't be one non-white person on the board. That's I think where a lot of organizations get stuck is they put one person and they're supposed to represent an entire community community on their own. So by being intentional of we need two or three young people on our board, we need two or three people of color on our board, whatever those numbers are that make the ratios good and, and right and equitable, that's a really good place to start because the owner the owner, ownership should never be just on one person. And that accountability piece is also incredibly important. And I think that peer accountability on boards is a huge strength to leverage their, their peers and across networks and companies and people want to do the right thing. I think inherently that's, that's true for most people. And so creating those goals um, and making sure that they're not tokenizing goals is what's going to work. And understanding that, you know, the the board that's willing to put themselves in that uncomfortable position of shifting culture and, and legitimately sharing the, the decision-making power with people that haven't been at the table before um, are going to end up maybe with some goals of, we thought it was this, until such time as more people come in and change and go, you know what, that was a fine starting point. But now that we have a somewhat more inclusive group, their voices are at the table saying, well, really, we also need to be doing these other things or do them differently than you did them or whatever. And that that's not to say that we're moving goalposts, but rather evolving once the, we, we get past the, um, the point of it being a very limited point of view from a, a fairly, you know, uniform group of people, uh, there will be that time when, when you do have those first few members that join where their lived experience may be, you know, great. Your goal was 
X, Y, or Z. But now um, that we're here and we're having this conversation, let me tell you some things about how, you know, this would be better for, you know, a more inclusive group in, in the first place. So being ready to hear that, you know, despite you had good intentions and everything, you just didn't set up the right goals in the first place and you learn is, is I think an important part of this process. You're absolutely right. And I think we live in a world where people are afraid to get it wrong because they're afraid to get attacked for getting it wrong. And it's, everything is so black and white, but I think taking those small steps as long as they're well-intentioned, you can always step back and pivot. And like you said, boards and organizations are going to continue to learn and, and evolve. But every small step that an organization can take is important, should be celebrated, and shouldn't be undervalued. And I think that in this place where young people are coming into more leadership positions and positions of power in general, that's something that they're looking for. And that they're looking to work with organizations, work with companies that are very intentional about what diversity means to them. So once again, this is this is a must-do, um, and every every step means something and should be celebrated. Yeah. Uh, we we are running pretty low on time. So are there areas that you really want to make sure we have a chance to mention as as people are kind of winding their thoughts around this? I think that one really important thing to mention is at the heart of this whole conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion on nonprofit boards is making boards better. We can't continue to stay in the status quo and have boards be something that are really boring and ineffective for the board members on them and are I don't want to say a waste of time for organizations, but they struggle with why am I spending so much time on my board and they're not showing up. But I think that when we think about boards as this group of team members that are there to support the executive director, which is a very lonely job, Mm -hmm. a partnership, when that's built, it's a beautiful thing. And that board, more than anybody else, has a true insider-outsider perspective in that they're on the same team, but can also look at things from a bird's eye view and from a very strategic view and support that executive director in the amazing and important work that they're doing. Really sound advice. I, I so much appreciate it. So as um, listeners are, are considering, all right, um, we've been talking about this for the last, you know, eight or nine years. We're going to get started. Um, what what I was hearing you say earlier is that um, looking at that very simple kind of Excel spreadsheet grid thing could be a, a good place to begin. Is there a, another typical um, entry point that you'd recommend for charities? That's a great place to begin. And the second is developing a board member job description and making sure that that reflects your intentions about what board diversity, equity, and inclusion looks like. And from there, creating a recruiting process that is that looks the same for everybody that approaches your organization and ultimately making decisions based on that grid and based on what those needs are so that you can make that board reflect what you want it to reflect, which is ultimately the community and a group of great people who are going to make better decisions and have better strategic discussions, all in service of the mission. Great. Well, Kate, how uh, should people continue to be involved in learning more? Is there resources on the web you want to point to, social channels? What's the best way for people to stay in touch? 
Yeah, so the best way is go to echoinggreen.org and find Direct Impact. You can reach me. I'd love to continue this conversation with anybody who's interested. And you can follow Echoing Green on social media, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. And of course, read read the article, A Roadmap to Better Boards in the SSIR for some tangible action items that you can take. Great. And we'll have that linked in the show notes. So uh, Kate Hayes, Director of Direct Impact, thank you so much for taking the time. Steve, thank you so much for having me and for such a great conversation.